Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast series. This series is brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication and is hosted by myself, Jennifer Sproul, Dominic Walters and Catherine Barnard. How we work is in the early stages of profound transformation. Over the next decade, the entire nature of how we work will change. Technology, evolving socio-cultural attitudes and behaviours, globalisation, climate change, and these are just some of the trends impacting the way we work in the 2020s. While many aspects of work will change in the coming years, some things remain constant. One of those is the role communication plays in our ability to create understanding, meaning, and enable people to perform at their best, both individually and collectively. How we communicate sits at the heart of organisational success. World-class communication transforms working lives by helping people feel informed, connected and purposeful. When we feel seen and heard, we feel our contribution matters. With change as the new normal, the work of the internal communication profession has never been more important. And in this podcast series, we explore the changing world of work to identify the opportunities for the internal communication profession. We believe that a better understanding of the future of work will help us deliver better communication strategies for our organisations. And when we better serve our organisations, by default, we future-proof our careers. We hope you find this podcast series thought-provoking and encourages you to really see the opportunities that lie ahead as the world of work continues to change. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode four of the Future of Internal Communication podcast series. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the critical role of internal feedback loops and the importance of listening and dialogue. And as always, I'm back with my regular co-hosts, Kat and Dom, here to talk to you today. But today, we're thrilled to welcome Deborah Hume from Minerva Engagement, who has got, uh, I believe, a PhD. Is that right? Uh, Deborah, in um, in understanding all about neuroscience and all those sorts of things, has got that real kind of expert perspective on on the human brain and how that works. <laughs> it's not quite a PhD, Jen, um, but I have got a diploma in neuroscience, and I've done various uh, degree courses around it. But uh, PhD is possibly a step too far. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take that as a very high essay. I have not studied anything to do with the brain and how it works, but I am absolutely fascinated by the topic and obviously you're a fellow of the institute as well and and I know you do a number of our training courses so I know that you have this expert understandings of of neuroscience so I'm really looking forward to this conversation um but before we hand over to you Deborah I'm going to kick off with you first of all Kat as our sort of resident future of work expert if you like so from your perspective of looking at the future of work and understanding those sort of trends why is that that feedback piece so so important for organizations Really good starting point, Jen. Um, so even before the pandemic, um, business business professors were looking at the future of work and and anticipating a number of accelerations. One being um, the impact that digital communications and the internet has had on commerce and how we do business with one another as organizations and so it was already forecast that uh, the pace and scale at which organizations would need to innovate to provide new products and services and internally to do things differently 
was set to dramatically accelerate. And realistically, the only way that you can innovate successfully is by engaging with all of your stakeholders to understand and get as much feedback on the market um, as you possibly can. So if you think about it in a most simplistic way, there's literally no point in developing, spending a whole load of time and effort and money on developing new products and services if nobody's going to buy them. You have to have um, engagement and interaction with the market to understand what people want and what's what's attractive, what's not attractive, and so on and so forth. And I think that that applies as much outwards into the market as inwards within organizations. So, for instance, it's no longer the case that a board of directors within an organization have got the knowledge to be able to determine the strategic direction of an organization. They just simply don't. There's too many variables and too many things going on in the marketplace so realistically the best way to move forward uh, commercially is by garnering and fostering collective intelligence the intelligence of everybody that sits within an organization to get everybody's input to to the best way forward um, if you think about how organizations typically engage with the external market. It would be through, I don't know, customer service or field sales or engineers or, or frontline staff and, you know, frontline um, people in the hospitality sector, you know, anywhere you can think of. The people on the frontline are the ones that always have the best market intelligence because they're the ones that are hearing in real time what the market is saying but obviously as we know because we've got again research that has shown this all too often that information that knowledge that is gathered kind of stops just inside the front door of a business because people don't feed that information upwards and sideways for reasons that we'll discuss in this podcast but there's a whole bunch of you know, there's a whole bunch of um, factors around the extent to which people feel safe to speak up and um, that that what they say will be listened to and acted on. And, and that kind of tees up this whole conversation, doesn't that, around how we communicate and what happens after the words have left our mouth. Well, let me pick up on that because I guess listening is a key thing that should happen after the words have left someone else's mouth. But um, I know from working with leaders that even nowadays in these supposed enlightened times, you talk to some leaders about the importance of listening and they'll give you that look that suggests that they know politically they should acknowledge it, but they don't really want to do it. So I think, Deborah, if I, I can ask you about this, I mean, from your point of view, why is listening so important? Why is it such an intrinsic part of dialogue? Um, and how does it make people feel safe, I suppose, if it does? And, and what benefits does it bring? There are three questions in one there. Deborah, what are your thoughts? I think um, the first thing to be clear about is this, this difference between dialogue, discussion and debate. So 
dialogue for me is all about collaborating. It's all about having a sense of curiosity and seeking to understand the perspective of the other person. Mm-hmm. Debate, as we know, is more oppositional to that. It's more about winning your point of view. And discussion is more when we present our ideas and we're looking to persuade others to be on the same page as, as us. I think organisations generally, particularly if they're not proactively thinking about it, tend to confuse debate and discussion with dialogue. Dialogue is very different and it requires different skills. And if we're to stay in dialogue, we have to learn how to suspend our own judgment. We really have to develop our listening skills, which is where the, the listening element comes into it. We have to understand the biases that we have. So if we're going to be a good listener, the reason why it's important to listen is because when we don't listen, if and you'll know this from your own experience, when we're talking to somebody and they're not listening, they're tapping away on their keyboard or they're thinking about something else, it actually impacts our own sense of status. We start to, even though it's unconscious, we start to feel this sort of sense of rejection when we're not heard and we switch off. What that means when somebody isn't listening is that we start to hesitate and we don't put our ideas forward. We actually think, oh, well, I shan't bother, come back another day. And by another day, it's all gone. So it impacts our sense of status when somebody's not listening to us. It also impacts our ability to sense make, to make sense of what's going on. Because if we are speaking to somebody, but we're not really listening to them fully, we might be hearing the words, but we're not picking up the emotional intent. And we're not picking up those subtle cues that, those sort of non-spoken signals, and therefore we might misread the emotion that's coming through, or we might misunderstand what's being said. So therefore we can't, as the listener, make sense properly and fully of what the other person is saying, because we miss a lot of the cues when we're tapping away on that keyboard. And I think the final thing for me, um, when we're not listening properly, is it has a very negative impact on connection. So we all like to connect, you know, there's been a lot of writing about it, particularly over the last year, 18 months with the pandemic. We are massively social beings. We like to feel like we belong. And when we're not listened to, we don't feel like we belong. And we don't feel like our contribution matters. Therefore, again, we start to withhold. So I think, Tom, there's there's a couple of sort of elements or we can look at it through a couple of lenses in terms of your question. Mm. One is just being clear about what we mean by dialogue. And then, okay, so how does then listening impact? And for me, it's about, it impacts status when we don't listen, it impacts sense-making when we don't listen, and it impacts connection when we don't Mm. listen. Mm. And I guess all of those things will contribute to someone's sense of psychological safety or or otherwise. But it'd be great if you've got any examples of uh, where you've seen listening boost that sense of safety. Psychological safety in itself is quite complex. Listening isn't all of it. Mm. Um, But yes, I have seen examples in meetings where somebody, for example, is trying to put a point of view across and three quarters of the meeting are on their phones. And what happens, it's quite interesting, is I don't know whether you've, you've seen it, the conversation dies. So somebody starts very enthusiastically and then they start to get slower and slower and the voice goes lower and lower until it almost peters off to nothing. 
because in the speaker's head, it's, well, nobody's listening to me anyway. Why should I bother? And I think so... Sorry, Kat, go on. No, 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 I'm totally interrupting you. I'm absolutely enthralled because one of the things was you're speaking, I'm literally feeling that I think we've all had a moment where we've, you know, few and far between. I, I should imagine we've all had a moment where we felt that we're not being listened to. And we've started out saying something that, that has the potential to be a major, you know, a contribution to a conversation. But what I'm thinking about as you're describing that, Deborah, is those moments where you you're saying something and you think it could be you know important but you're aware that not everyone's paying attention to you and so your mind wanders you've got this thing that you want to say but your mind in parallel is wandering and this awareness is kind of growing and looming and it deflects from your ability to articulate yourself as well because you're not paying attention to what it was that you wanted to get out so it's really interesting, isn't it? Yes. And and I think there's a difference as well between not being listened to in a general sense and being talked over and closed down. So um, if, if somebody's not listening in a general sense one day, because let's, let's be clear, to actually listen to somebody fully is a very exhausting thing to do. Because we're not just listening to the voice, we're listening to the emotion, we're listening to the body, we're listening to the clues, we're listening to the cues. We're listening to everything. And because our brain only has a certain amount of capacity, we can't listen like that all day long. So if we're being really thoughtful about how we lead and how we manage our teams, we, we ourselves need to be clear on when it's really essential that we are 100% listening and when we can perhaps not be quite so deep with our listening. And that's not to say not listening. So that's a skill we can learn. The other element which comes back into psychological safety is if the culture is such that people who put their ideas on the table are shut down or closed down or talked over or laughed at or humiliated, that has a massive impact on psychological safety levels. So much so that what you were talking about earlier, Kat, in terms of being able to take the perspective from people that might exist right at the edge of our organisation becomes impossible because there's no way that I am going to put my voice up and speak up if I think that you're going to use it against me or you might even give me my P45 in two months' time. I'm just not going to do it. And so, therefore, psychological safety levels fall. Now, if you think about our organisations and how they exist today, they're not boundaried. They're not like those containers that you see on the back of ships going across the ocean where there's hard edges and corners and we know our identity and within it you've got a way of working with purpose and values and structure and governance and it's all quite ordered it's not like that anymore it's more like a, a configuration of lots of different cables that you'd see in one of those old bt boxes all mixed up together constantly evolving and constantly moving and i'm not sure i'm not sure some have actually but not all our organizations have made the step change between how we used to be to this fluid, complex, ever-changing, constantly evolving, constantly emerging, almost, it's not a mess, but you could describe it as that, that we work within now. And the only way that we can manage our way through that, as Kat rightly pointed out, is listening to the perspectives of many, many different people to understand. I think the days of the 
five years strategic plans have gone. Yeah, Who knows? 100%. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you'd have said that sort of 18 months ago or two years ago, people would have looked at you as if you were crazy. But I don't believe, I mean, I'm, I don't know Facebook. I don't work, but I'd be work there. But I'd be very surprised if they had a five to 10 year plan. They have a direction. They listen hard and they shift, evolve and change according to what's in front of them. And that will change very rapidly over the next few years. Uh, bang on. And I would also add to that, there's a really interesting book, and I think it was published in 2013, by a lady called Rita Gunther McGrath. And I think she's at Columbia um, Business School in the United States. And the book was called The End of Competitive Advantage. And back then, so what's that? Eight years ago, Ooh. she was predicting that the future organization would be incredibly agile and fluid and shape-shifting and, and made up of, you know, uh, a continuous kind of flow of impermanent contribution to the extent that leaders have to, as an absolute survival imperative, rethink the core mm. skills that are required by an organization for it not just to survive but also to thrive and actually that being the case it's an it's interesting isn't it because we're still seeing job descriptions that read roles responsibilities experience required good communication skills oh my gosh we need to breathe some life into that dialogue because mm -hmm. listening for my money is a key meta skill for the 21st century and to your point deborah we can learn it it's hard work it is hard work because it, I, it's tiring i just I, i'm just reflecting in as well i just want to jump in and just this perspective i find this fascinating and it's just putting up a couple of thoughts in my mind around the things that we're talking about and perhaps you know picking up that piece about why is it so tiring and exhausting why do we why are we trying to dodge that investment in that skill what what, what takes us away from that and i do, and this is all this piece around competitive advantage the business fluidity agility it makes me we talk a lot about how we're now a knowledge economy but we're also an intelligence economy and actually and i think that a lot of what's happened is that businesses this is just my perspective have spent years crafting understanding consumer intelligence consumer behavior consumer feel consumer mood then you have the mass evolution of big data so it's like well we don't need to understand feelings and emotions anymore we'll just take data because that's easier and it's structured and i can take a piece of information and i can put it there and if you look at what's going on in consumer intelligence you know we're not perhaps putting as much effort as we used to into that listening in that dialogue from a consumer point of view let alone what's happening on the employee point of view or actually in organizations that's essentially what you've got is that asset of your in collective intelligence as a group of people and I guess that's just my we're just thinking that through is like is it because why are we so poor at it why do we lean towards the hard data because and we want that five-year plan as you talk about we've got to be agile why do we not want to listen why are we so poor at it why what's the fear in going to this place is it just they don't see the effort versus the reward but we know it's there no no I think it's um I think it's more basic than that, Jen, actually. I, emotions are messy, right? Emotions are really, really messy. And also, they're incredibly personal, really personal. We all have this view of ourselves that we are um, good people. 
and that we treat others well and that we respect others. Nobody, nobody likes to accept that there's areas that needed to be developed and sometimes they don't treat people well and sometimes the way we behave is not in line with what we say. Nobody. It's like putting a mirror up and seeing something you don't really like. And the problem with listening and, and developing your listening skills is that unlike everything else that we've learned historically, we can't learn it from a book or by studying it. By re We're good at that. We're really good at studying. Really good. I, I think I say this to people all the time. We could spend the next five years studying listening and be able to write a PhD on it. But unless we've actually put it into practice, we'd still be, I should say crap there, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> we'd, still be, we'd still be really poor listeners ourselves. Because in order to develop our listening skills, we have to be able to manage our own emotions. We have to learn how to calm our own system. We have to be able to take feedback and reflect on it and accept when somebody's giving us feedback and they're not telling us that we're marvellous, that they're not attacking us. We have to be authentic. We have to be vulnerable. It takes a massive amount of courage for anybody, particularly a leader, to stand in front of their team and to take feed genuine feedback on what they need to do to improve their leadership capability. It's really, really personal. And when the rubber hits the road, whilst a lot of us have the right intent to want to do it, we'd much rather go and read a couple of books about it than actually take the chance of putting ourselves out there in front of other people and testing, reflecting, learning, feedback, test, reflect, learn, feedback, because that's the only way you develop these kind of skills. I think it, it's definitely counterintuitive counter for some leaders because they've been yeah. brought up to be in control of situations. And I know that when we talk often with leaders about you've got to get out and, t and listen to people, some of them have said quite candidly that the trouble with listening to people is they tell you stuff. And if they mm -hmm. tell you stuff, you have to act on it, or you may not like it, or you get put on the spot. And I think it's still that, you use the word vulnerability, I think that's right. Uh, it's yes. about people being vulnerable and putting themselves out um, for what they could be as, as criticism or ridicule, I think. Kat, and sorry. Sorry. Oh, sorry, Kat, go on. No, no, no. I was just, I was just going to add into that, and I think what is so fascinating about that is, is, is the way in which we interpret our sense of self in our work lives versus our personal lives. So, I think all of us have probably heard that whole thing um, evolve over the last ten years. Leave your ego at the door. Bring your whole self to work. I mean, great words, but we're all absolutely rubbish at it. But actually, what I think is really interesting is when you really start picking into this, that vulnerability that you talk about, Deborah, which I absolutely get and 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 support. You know, if you think about it at a human level, all of us, unless we're completely antisocial, as in we do not interface with anybody else beyond the people that we work with, we spend every day of our lives renegotiating our relationships with the people around us, with our friends and our family through the art of conversation. So for instance, Dom, you and I might be having an offline conversation and I might be telling you my view on politics right now and you might you would probably say hmm but and you would be causing me to reconsider how I think about the world which is fundamentally a revisit isn't it of what I mm -hmm. believe to be true because you've told me something that is causing me to think twice 
And that, to me, when I think about this challenge that is very evident in our workplaces right now, this challenge of leadership and management, you know, I don't want to ask the questions or engage in the listening activity because I'm going to hear stuff that I don't like. How is that different from the way in which we live our our non-work lives where we're constantly having to upgrade our perspectives to accommodate the um, ideas of others. Does that make sense? I mean, I think that's Ooh. a really interesting topic right there. But I think what you're saying goes for lots of personal communication because yeah. I think one of the great ironies is, and I guess in some ways it's good news for those of us who make a living out of helping leaders be better communicators because they leave their communication skills at the door often. Um, and so they, they can have good conversations. They can often listen constructively and effectively. They can take take on board other people's views and show empathy but for whatever reason they choose not to at work whether it's because of politics or like all the reasons we've been discussing uh, so uh, I, my experience is many people have these skills no sorry many people have these skills but they don't always choose or feel it's appropriate to use them at work i'm not so sure about that actually i think many people think they have those skills but genuinely there are a few people who have done the work on themselves to bring those skills to the fore um, there are a few that I've, I've come across who are genuinely brilliant but it, uh, uh, in this space, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult to do if you haven't exercised your social intelligence, your emotional intelligence, or your attentional intelligence, which actually makes up that collective intelligence. And mm. most people, most people don't recognize the four intelligences. So for example, whilst some have spent quite a, a number of hours learning about their emotional reactions and where their boundaries are and how to regulate their emotion in the moment and also how to regulate their emotion um, further away from the moment with things like mindfulness, for example. Those individuals make a huge difference within our organisations because they're the ones that facilitate that collaborative discussion and conversation. And I don't believe that the businesses and the organizations of today will be able to move forward in the way that they think they're going to move forward if they haven't got not just leaders, but individuals across their organizations who behave and operate in that way. But they're going to need some time to do it. And how many organizations, I hear a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion about people who sit within that middle layer, so not having the skills or not being um, conducive to change or whatever, but how many organizations have actually put, put in place safe spaces for that middle layer to reflect amongst themselves on how they are with their teams, to actually have a safe space to come back to, to say, do you know what, this isn't working for me, or I tried this with my team and it didn't quite go, where they can bring their own, or yeah. have their own sense of safety, because we're asking people who've never had to do this to put themselves for them in a very threatening situation without an awful lot of, of support to go along with it. If you have an individual who's used to not necessarily micromanaging, but used to controlling their team very uh, tightly to objectives and standards. And, and if you say that, right, yes, we still need that because particularly psychological safety, it's not about not having good government. It's not about sloppy management. 
It's not about not having good governance, but it is about creating the environment where people can share their thoughts, their insights, bring their ideas. That takes a completely different type of leadership, a, a high degree of vulnerability, a massive amount of courage. And yet not many organizations have put the support in place to create a safe space for that group to learn and grow. I think that's fascinating. I think we've talked a lot in this series as well about leaders and how they need to communicate. But let's not, but there's just, there is one tier. Exactly. And if you take that approach in an organisational design and, and actually that structure when you think about, you know, multi-directional flows and conversations and what happens at small level, large level, group level, this level, team level. We, we you know, we need, it's, it's a mass way to look at that across such often complex organisational structures. And actually, if we're talking about, and I just wonder, you know, listening to you, there is an awful lot of support and time and patience because actually managing people is really difficult and it's and getting it wrong is it's, it's it hurts someone's soul dare I say it when I've got yeah. it wrong it's hurt my soul and you know and because it, it feels so exposing um when and you know I remember someone saying to me years ago but management isn't democracy you're not there to be liked but if I'm not liked how am I, how am I going to get them to, to, to open up and to have a dialogue with me if they don't trust me or they, or they don't want to work with me? And I think that there's a real issue with how we're supporting that kind of infrastructure or that kind of, as you say, emotional support or giving that guidance across every level of an organisation. Because that's, that's when truly you're doing it, I guess, isn't it? Is, it has to be at every point. Um, and that's maybe the piece that we, we need to help and our organisations understand and do we is there a way of putting in that case for it Deborah I mean I don't know if you have any experiences when you go in and say look I know this looks like a lot of work and you're like but why do we want to do this to you know what's the business benefit is there a way perhaps as a profession as internal communicators that we can do something better to make that argument for that investment I think the, uh, particularly the intern, I mean, the internal communication profession is my home anyway, as you know, but mm. I think the internal communication profession is in an absolutely fantastic position to influence within organizations. They're the one function that has access right across the organization. They're the one function that can bring communication skills to support leaders, I think, and, and middle managers and look at how we can not just um, follow through with formal feedback, formal feedback loops, but also look at the emerging themes that are coming through from the narratives and the experiences that people are having across the entire organization. So for me, I think the role of the internal communicator is going to move much more in towards a strategic influencer within the organization and being able to bring different groups together, whether it be L&D, HR, DNI, whatever, to be able to support what we're trying to do here, because there is no one answer. And even the answer that we create today is going to be out of date in two months. And leaders, because I've heard that as well, leaders say, but you know, I'm frightened of asking the question because I haven't got the answer. Well, do you know what? You don't need the answer anymore. And if you actually stand in front of me and say, you've got the answer, I think you were a bit off base. Because nobody's got the answer. <laughs> nobody's got the answer. And actually, the only way you're going to find, not the answer, but find a direction through which will shape, shift, and change over time anyway, 
is by engaging in this collaborative way of working. And I don't know whether you guys know, but it's really, I find it fascinating. The University of Amsterdam of social scientists, they advertised a PhD position in April. Have you heard about this? No. No. They've advertised a PhD position and it's for communicating with and relating to social robots. So they want to do a PhD. They want somebody to, it's not far away. They want to understand how we're going to communicate within our organizations effectively between social robots and humans. That's how fast it's going. And there's some things that we, it's something we've not touched on massively as well in this podcast series and perhaps something to pick up in the future. But, you know, I've done a, you know, with Kat and Dom and, and I looked at sort of the future of work and we haven't really talked about the human and machine scenario of the future yeah. And, yeah. and what that looks like. And there's some sort of, I guess, future trend people that think that, well, actually, if we're going to create robots, they're not going to have emotion. So maybe that means we need to be more emotionally led in the jobs that we create for our humans. But now are we trying to make our machines humans as well? I mean, then that changes the whole picture because actually we are social creatures and that's quite a scary thought, I think. It is indeed. I think uh, it's a few years out, but it's, it's yeah. certainly being... Um, Elon Musk is certainly looking at it. I know he's definitely looking at it. Of yeah. course, whilst he's taking himself to the moon and other things (laughs) Um, the bit that you mentioned there which I thought was really powerful Deborah about um, you know the shift towards um, away from conventional internal communication activities towards the role of strategic influence I really liked that and I just wanted to add a point because for me there's an absolute um, play in here that that fits again hand in glove with um, an evolution of the of the roles and responsibilities of the um, internal communicator and that's that of community builder so in addition to influencing how do we create community within our organizations because if if our organizations are going to increasingly consist of a revolving door of transients talent what's the glue the culture is the glue but if the what sits behind the culture is a whole load of inauthentic policy and procedure you know we need people within our organizations who are almost the conductor to the orchestra who are bringing people together to create those moments of collaboration and collective intelligence and you know people have been talking a lot haven't they over the last 18 months about oh water cooler moments we need to bring everyone back to the office for the water cooler moments well let's step away from the place and let's explore the chemistry the interpersonal dynamic that goes into a water cooler moment and there's something so so powerful in all of this conversation today that that is you know we've talked I know in previous um, podcast conversations a little bit about the art of communication and as the days and weeks and months creep by for me I think business has become 
a science, the science of business. And to your point, Deborah, read this book and you'll become an expert, <laughs> you know, but actually how we communicate, A, we're hardwired for it and B, it is an art because it's never ending. It's, it's a, it's, it is that dance where you're continuously hopefully striving to do better because the alternative to that is social rejection which nobody wants and I think personally that we need to be embracing the arts of business as much as the science of business because art is what makes us come alive and you know it plays to our inner soul doesn't it the way that we communicate with one another can make or break a relationship it makes or breaks trust it makes or breaks everything that actually really matters in the world i think i may have just become a bit philosophical uh, but I, 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 <laughs> you know what i'm talking about <laughs> well very much so and i think it's a it's a lovely way of bringing together the, all, all the things we've been talking about because i think what, one of the things you said is that for um leaders to be successful my words but for leaders to be successful they need to quickly get the trust of people in a small team that may only be there for a while because they're working on a particular project. So it's important for a leader to understand the uh, emotions of those teams, to understand them as individuals, to get on their wavelength as quickly as possible. And that's all around, I guess, trust and the, the role of trust in building relationships. So, uh, Deborah, can I ask you to, I guess, bring together some of the points we've been talking about and say, uh, from your point of view, your experience, what are some of the ingredients in trust uh, and how does it help do what Kat was saying around building those relationships? I think um, one of the key ingredients uh, in trust is actually consistency of behaviour and word over time. Mm. I think that's really important. That's where your emotional regulation comes in. Everybody knows, particularly as there are no boundaries anymore, everybody knows which leaders talk down their staff everybody knows which leaders lose their temper and throw their laptop around or scream down the phone they don't just actually know within the organization they also know outside the organization might never have worked for that organization but they'll know which leaders are they need to avoid so this this whole thing about behavior it isn't just about and this is where the the discipline comes into play because it's not just about managing it for a week or a month it's a life choice it's a life choice, not just when we're within our organizations, but also when we're at home. And I would actually say that we need to be even better than the best when we're within our organizations, because when we're at home, we tend to be surrounded by people like us with the same ideas, the same thoughts, family, friends, probably, you know, we might go on holiday together, probably buy the same cars, come from the same social demographic in the main, not totally, but in the main, when we go into our organizations, it's a microcosm of society from all different walks of life, all different age groups, all different religions, all different beliefs. We have to be able to manage ourselves through that. That's really difficult. So I think that consistency over time is really important. Authenticity for me is really important for trust. You know, trying to pretend that we know all the answers, trying to pretend that we got here because it was so easy and forgetting to tell everybody the hardship that we had along the way is not being authentic. So authenticity is, and we can spot that, we can smell it a mile off. It's one of the big social things that we have. Being able to create this safe space, which I know you mentioned early on, Dom, is really key. And safe space, like I said earlier, it's not about, it's not an excuse for sloppy management. Yes, we still need to have the standards and the processes, 
but we also, particularly now, in this new world that we're in, that is not going to go backwards, we need to be able to understand what we need to do, whoever we are, to actually create a space where people can speak freely. And believe me, those conversations are not all about being nice with each other. The most difficult thing in the world to do is to stay in safe space when you are talking to somebody who has a diametrically different view to you. To be able to maintain your calm, to be able to explore with curiosity why they're coming or where they're coming from is massively difficult. <laughs> and if you haven't had the training, pretty impossible and usually ends in a debate, which actually ends in a win-lose and nobody really won after all. So I think there's a whole load of things. I don't think I summarized it particularly well, but I, it comes back to the beginning in terms of why is listening important? Because it impacts status, it impacts sense-making, and it impacts connection. But sitting underneath all of that is how we ourselves manage ourselves, because it's not them out there. It actually starts with us. Such a great reflection. You know, I'm just And it's one of those things I listen to, Jeff, I kind of go how do I handle myself in those situations mm. do I take feedback well do I listen to that do I lean into it and because I'm not sure that I've, I've ever in my career as well asked myself enough of those questions or reflected on those questions enough mm. and actually actually how am I therefore then supporting my team to do that you know, and I'm not qualified necessarily, you know, I say I haven't read a book, <laughs> yeah. but, um, you know, just from life experience, which is yeah. a, a lot of things, isn't it? Um, and how am I really equipping the people around me or my team around me to do that? Because if I can handle that, then we might innovate more or try more or experiment more or move around more or be more pacey and maybe, you know, dare I say it a little bit more, have more fun. Because actually, there's that there is a lack of that fear, and and it's, I really enjoy the conversation because it's one of those that makes you, as you say, really think about you. Because actually, we can sit here as you know on this podcast and say this is what we used to do, but I'm going to go off and think, well, what am I doing on that? And I think that's a really important thing that perhaps some of our listeners could can have a think about. And from an internal comms point of view, is what are we doing as a profession, perhaps to to invest in our own learning however hard that is so that then we can role model that behavior to be that strategic influencer yeah. i think as well just to finish off one thing that i would like communicators to think about because this is important because it comes back to group thinking if i look across the profession quite a number of the profession are from a certain there's a lot of us that are female not all of us but a lot of there's a lot of us from a certain class there's a lot of us from a certain background and actually therefore from our own point of view, it, you're right, Jen, it's really important that we keep asking ourselves, is this just my view? Is this, is this group think? Or do we need to go wider? Do we need to understand more? Do we need to look at it through the lens of somebody who's from the transgender community or from a different community or from another community? Do we need to really probe? Because I think otherwise we become we become very, without meaning to, very one-dimensional ourselves. Mm. Mm. I think that's a great thing from this episode. I think there's so much wonderful stuff, Patrick. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure we, we all have. And um, I think that's something for hopefully our listeners to go away and, and have, a, have a real think about. And um, as you say, when we talk about this podcast for internal communicators, we have a, a ripe opportunity to help be that strategic influencer. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Deborah, for your time today. And as always, to Kat and Dom, I will see you on the, on the next episode. Uh, take care. 
This podcast has been brought to you today by the Institute of Internal Communication and is produced by Jessica Williams and Shabi Tolu Ogun Polu.